Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chapter Brothers. My name is Nick Ackerman. And my name is Kevin Ackerman. <laughs> All right, and today we're, we're going to actually finish um, our discussion on the Gunslinger. Exactly. Uh, certainly not, not finish our discussion on the Dark Tower, but... Uh, it's great to finish a book with you, Kevin. Indeed, yeah. The, we, we finished the, the story of the first book last week, but today we're finishing all the way to the end of both of our hardcover, I mean, our uh, hard copy uh, editions of the book with the afterword yeah, yeah. from the 1982 edition. Yeah, the, the, the afterword. So there is an afterword, mm. um, and it's actually really interesting. And oh, yeah, Kevin, so illuminating. So the the fun part about this is, uh, you know, this this whole time nexus thing. Mm -hmm. You actually started in the very first episode with part of the afterward. That (laughs) is true. I didn't realize that until I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is what Kevin was talking about. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, because I I, at first I didn't think we were actually going to do this as a a separate episode all of its own. But I I am on board that I feel like it deserves its own episode entirely because the first episode we were kind of setting up things and I wasn't. And so I was kind of like, oh, well, here's some background to the story that is in the book technically but you know the uh, let's uh, let's give a little refresher for our readers uh yeah <laughs> perhaps you need a refresher course <laughs> tall ball um, bearings these days <laughs> hey <laughs> there you go <laughs> fletch um well actually i have a quick stephen king trivia for you and I, th- I think it will lead into our discussion today so it's time for the stephen king trivia dun, da, da, da. Dun, da, da, da. um and it's a real quick one awesome uh two questions long all right um so Stephen King wrote the Dark Tower series, and it was based on a poem. Mm-hmm. What poem is that? That poem is Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came by Robert Browning. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, so, oh, man, I I'm, I remember you saying this a while back about this poem and that he uh, based the whole thing on this poem. But I, I didn't read it mm-hmm. until now. Mm. Until today. Um, and um, it was written in like 1850-something? Uh, 1855, I think. Let's see. Written. According to the page that I've got open, let's see. Robert Browning lived from 1812 to 1889 from a Victorian anthology from 1837 to 1895. Okay, so that kind of narrows it down a little bit further. Uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, I, I don't know specifically when the poem was written. It doesn't really matter. Um, point is, it was at least 100 years before... 1852. Um, Stephen King... Oh, no, wait. 1852. Written 1852, published 1855. So is that what you oh, said, 1855? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I did some research, too. Indeed. So. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's on the scale of uh, Back to the Future years, so if they had gone 30 years before the, the Old West era, they could have talked to Robert Browning... <laughs> I would have liked to talk to Robert Browning because he sounds like a cool guy. Seriously, um, also I, I know uh, none, of, none of his poetry. Oh, I think you already do. One of uh, his poems is uh, "The Pied Piper of Hamelin." Oh, okay. There you go. I do know that. Hmm. Huh. Um, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the uh, the, the the rhyme scheme. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, he, he keeps it uh, constant throughout. So it's it's a. Uh, a B B, wait. Yeah, you're right. A B B 
A A B. Yeah, exactly. For each line, A B B A A B. Yeah, for each uh, so stanza, like, I should it, say. Yeah, each stanza, and uh, it's it's sort of an epic poem. It takes a minute to get through, definitely. Um, but it's it's wonderfully written. Mm. And, oh yeah. Um, I can see how Stephen King was inspired mm. by it. Definitely. And <laughs> actually, uh, when I first uh, read this book, when I first read The Dark Tower, uh, I, you know, me being the, you know, voracious bookworm slash kleptomaniac that I am, I went through all <laughs> of mom and dad's books and uh, just kind of because uh, they had um, not very, not that many books, like as compared to my house is basically a library at this point, but uh, mom and dad had a lot of uh, like religious books, uh, a lot of ton of children's books because, you know, the, they were much more often about buying books for us than buying books for themselves. And they well, their un- unselfish nature when you have eight children. So, precisely. Okay, let's yeah. spend the money on children. Not a, not <laughs> a lot of time to to read novels. Yeah. So, uh, but they what they did have. Uh, I'm pr- I feel like this has got to be a book of dads. So I would want to talk to him about this. But he did have a collection of uh, romantic uh, romantic poems of Robert Browning and Child Roland to the Dark Tower mm. came is was on Mom and Dad's shelf. There you go yeah oh my gosh it was there all along and exactly. i never read it but before we even get to robert browning i actually just just want to read the first two paragraphs of the afterword yes stephen king and um and let's go from there because Correct. this is where we really get stephen king's voice mm, which i love because <laughs> but it's like you feel like you're actually talking to the writer mm-hmm. at, uh, and this afterword is beautiful true <laughs> yes I, I recommend like if you if you can listen to any like interviews by Stephen King or any time that he narrates any of his stories like please do so because his like just the way that he talks is so human and so like his nasally main accent uh, comes through so much that I just love it because personally I hate my own voice and I feel like I always sound like much more high pitched and nasally than I do in real life and then I hear Stephen King talk exactly yeah and then I hear Stephen King talk and I'm like oh well everybody's got a human voice and nobody's perfect so you know it's it's about the words that are in your brain it's not about the words that are coming out of your mouth absolutely um, but it's it's a different tone totally. than the whole rest of the book that we've been reading. Yes. It's like now I'm just going to talk to you like a exactly. guy, exactly, old Uncle Steve. Yeah, and this, this is this is 1982 Steve exactly. talking. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so afterward, the foregoing tale, which is almost but not quite complete in itself, is the first stanza in a much longer work called The Dark Tower. Some of the work beyond this segment has been completed. But there is much more to be done. My brief synopsis on the action to follow suggests a length approaching 3,000 pages. Perhaps more. That probably sounds as if my plans for the story have passed beyond mere ambition into the land of lunacy. But ask your favorite English teacher sometimes to tell you about the plans Chaucer had for the Canterbury Tales. Now, Chaucer might have been crazy. At the speed which before we go past that, I, in, before we go past that, okay. I just want to... I did a deep dive on uh, Chaucer a little bit. Uh, so... He never finished. Yes. The, originally, the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> so, a uh, little bit of background. Canterbury Tales is the story. Uh, it's basically like an anthology book of all of these different people who are going on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And No, no, no. To uh, Saint... Where were they going? 
To see the, the Archbishop of Canterbury Archbishop for of some Canterbury, reason. Exactly. I yeah, I was going to say Thomas Aquinas, yeah. but no, um, that was might have actually been after this. But Archbishop of Canterbury, and so the published work that we have today is uh, twenty-four different stories. He originally planned over a hundred. So it was going to be basically to the the their pilgrimage there, and then the stories as they tell each other on the pilgrimage back to from whence they came. So, um, did, did anybody finish that story? That's I my question. Don't think so. Not to my knowledge. I mean, I'm sure there's probably well, Canterbury Tale let's, fan fiction. Let's, let's, uh, Fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> so, th- according to so, my copy of the Canterbury Tales is five hundred and two pages over the course of twenty four stories. So, when I divide that up, it ends up being um, twenty point nine uh, pages per story. So, when I multiply that by a hundred, we end up with uh, like two thousand and ninety one. So that's way less than the 3,000 that he had imagined. So I don't know what Stephen King had in mind, but according to uh, Wikipedia... Well, so first I went back and I had to do the math based on the books that I currently have. So the uh, of the number of pages of the following six books of the Dark Tower... Well, uh, okay. Of the following six books of the Dark Tower that I have, it's 4,031 pages. But when I when I go to the Wikipedia length, the total would be 4,250. So, when you take out the, the Dark Tower, 4,026. So, he is well over what his original estimation was, and twice as long... <laughs> pretty close! Yeah, twice as long as uh, Chaucer, as our, you know, rough estimate of what uh, 100 stories of Chaucer would have been. So I feel like uh, Stephen King must be thinking, must have a different story of uh, what Chaucer's plans were, because 2,000 pages is definitely not even close. <laughs> but in any case, that's enough of the math. Oh, man. But but that's the whole point, is because as I was saying, I was like, 3,000 pages, hmm, I wonder what it actually was. And you, you told me the answer. Yep. It was, ended up being 4,200 pages. True. <laughs> Did you say 4,256? Uh, the- no. Well... <laughs> So if we're excluding uh, the gunslinger, he's saying he, in the afterward there, he said, uh, uh, mm, my brief synopsis suggests a length approaching 3000, perhaps more. And then so then in what was actually published is uh, over 4026. So 4026. Yeah. <laughs> so we so we got a ways to uh, go. Yeah. Oh, and that's great. Mm. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a completist, and I like a journey, so this, this is going to be wonderful. Mm. <clears throat> At the speed which the work entire has progressed so far, I would have to live approximately 300 years to complete the tale of the tower. This segment, The Gunslinger and the Dark Tower, was written over a period of 12 years. It is by far the longest I've taken with any work. And it might be more honest to put it, to put it another way, it's the longest that any of my unfinished works has remained alive and viable in my own mind. And if a book is not alive in the writer's mind, it is as dead as year old horseshit. Even if words continue to march across the page. Hmm. Totally agree. I've got plenty of dead stories that are, you know, skeletons in my brain right now. (laughs) Well, you said to me before, um, uh, what is it? Uh, A a bad first draft is better than a blank page. Exactly. Right. Mm. 
<laughs> but the problem is, a bad first yeah. draft still has to have an ending. And so far, I think uh, I have like three or four stories that are more than short stories that actually do have an ending. Uh, I've written, you know, my share of short. <laughs> I'm very good at writing a vague but hopeful, uh, hopefully ended uh, short story. But when it comes to writing anything novel length, I'm not even close. I, I've got a, a bunch of chapter ones, but not a single chapter two. Um, I don't know, Kevin. Should we complete the circle? Oh, I, I think you should read this next part because um, you started the whole thing in the first episode with reading this story. All right, uh, so do it again. Exactly, it again. resumption as uh, <laughs> as it said in the the new version. Uh, the dark tower began, I think, because I inherited a ream of paper in the spring semester of my senior year in college. It wasn't a ream of your ordinary garden variety bond paper, not even a ream of those colorful second sheets that many struggling writers use, because those reams of colored sheets, often with large chunks of undissolved wood floating in them, are three or four dollars cheaper. The ream of paper I inherited was bright green, nearly as thick as cardboard, and of an extremely eccentric size, about seven inches wide by about ten inches tall. So the usual uh, eight and a half by 11. So it's like an inch narrower and uh, what is it? An inch and a half narrower and an inch shorter. So it's like slightly smaller and more vertical oriented paper here. I was working at the University of Maine library at the time and several reams of the stuff in various hues turned up one day totally unexplained and unaccounted for. Uh, my wife-to-be, the then Tabitha Spruce, took one of these reams of paper, Robin's Egg Blue, home with her. The fellow she was then going out with took another, Roadrunner Yellow, and I got the green stuff. So, as it happened, all three of us turned out to be real writers. A coincidence almost too large to be t termed mere coincidence in a society where literally t tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of college students aspire to the writer's trade, and where bare hundreds actually break through. I feel like that stat has got to be way lower nowadays. I feel like writers are... There's got to be maybe like 10% as many uh, nowadays as there used to be. What do you think? Hmm. That's a good question. Wait, you think there's less writers now than there were then? Mm. Well, write, writers proper. Right. Um, hmm. I mean, everybody thinks they're a writer these days, but a lot of people do it over, like, video and, and YouTube things and, and... True. Stuff like that. But, like, actually yeah, writing books, yeah. I would say that there are... I'd say... I, I think you're right that there were more then totally than there are yeah. now because people it's a it's a different kind of like uh, yeah, it's a different media market than in general than is yeah uh, I don't think there's that many people as many like percentage wise I, I mean also the population mm -hmm. has grown incredibly uh, now now I'm getting too much into the data but like <laughs> hmm. But I mean, even so, um, I feel like so there are so many more people who are going into computer fields, going into either uh, streaming or uh, movies or TV and everything. And I feel like the, the number of novelists has to have shrunk down by an insane amount. But that's just my... Which means, which means, let's write a novel because... Uh, I'm like, on board if you are, totally. <laughs> the yeah. world needs novelists. 
True. I <laughs> I go up to I, so many of my friends. I've said we should write a book together. So I am more than happy to start something with you. And I, I've got the wellspring of creativity. What I need is an engine to keep moving the the story forward. So. <laughs> Good. Exactly. Good. Yes, I, I, I need that uh, talking push cart to for the encouragement and yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bringing it back full circle. Dark Tower. Yes. So as we were saying, yeah, I've gone on to publish half a dozen novels or so. My wife has published has published one, Small World, and she's gone on to publish uh, at least a dozen since then, and is hard at work on an even better one. And the. F- Stab of the Spruce, Stab of the Spruce, of the Spruce King. Uh, and the fellow she was going with back then, David Lyons, mm-hmm. has developed an, into a fine poet and the founder of Lynx Press in Massachusetts. So I also looked up David Lyons and surprisingly difficult to track down. So, yeah, so okay. I looked him up and yeah. the oh, really? Let's see. So there is a philosopher named David Lyons. There is a thriller author named David Lyons. Um, but... When I looked up uh, Lynx Press in Massachusetts, it said that it was uh, co-founded by someone named David Lyon. So uh, then I looked up David Lyon again and even fewer people. So I'm led to believe that he probably didn't uh, pursue writing at least enough to have a Wikipedia page or a conclusive link uh, to Stephen King and Tabitha Spruce. Uh, I was looking up author biographies okay. to be somebody who would have been born in the, the late 40s or early 50s, but still inconclusive. So uh, David Lyon seems to have fallen by the wayside. But if you look up Tap the Spruce, Tap you'll the find... Tap the Spruce definitely her, has her own um, Wikipedia page. Oh, yeah, yeah. Works. She's... Or tap, tap the Spruce King. King. Yes. King. She's, uh, her books are in the Rutherford Public Library, uh, so she's definitely, uh, at the very least, uh, warrants uh, her own uh, her own spaces in our hometown library. Yeah, yeah. But someone like David Lyons, who was a poet, like was published. Like, if I look up Kevin Ackerman, all right. You, you've written some things. Will I be able to find your stuff? Uh, what you would find if you look up Kevin Ackerman, probably my my YouTube page, probably this, and probably not much else, because the what I do for work is never really credited. So, like, you know, promos and uh, right. YouTube videos on, uh, like, Sci-Fi Wire and stuff like that, the, my name isn't anywhere on them. But, uh, yeah, certainly nothing that I've written, yeah. Point is, point is, um, what we can find on the internet is not necessarily like <laughs> what's great about that ah, person. Now I see like, your point. You know, like these people might have been doing like David Lyons. Maybe you didn't. I'm sure he wrote some wonderful poems, and we'd have to really do some dig diving and uh, to, to find what, what he's done. Like, eh. like if you, if you Google Nick Ackerman, you're gonna get beard competitions and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, I'm actually a lot more than that. Very true. <laughs> you know? So, whatever. So the internet doesn't always tell us the whole story. <laughs> Very true. Possibly those uh, stock photos that you took as well. <laughs> uh, yep, yep. Dude, my, my face was on a billboard. I was like, well, I didn't get any money for that. Why, why is my face on a billboard in Philadelphia? That's strange. Hey, you were seen by millions. <laughs> I well, guess. I mean, you got paid for the stock footage shoot, Whatever. right? Um, actually, no, it was just for fun with my friend. Yeah, you or, definitely should have gotten paid for that. Yeah. 
Eh, I didn't really care. Was, I didn't understand what it meant to be a mustache model at the time. <laughs> anyway, but and then it ends with and this uh, maybe it was the paper, folks. Maybe it was magic paper. You know, like in a Stephen King novel. And that's where you ended. I do love that. <laughs> so now that we've completed that circle, let's continue on to our next tangent. So next tangent. So he goes on to <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Stephen King goes on to talk about the the like he goes on to wax poetic a little bit about the uh, all of you uh, out there reading this may not understand how fraught with possibility those five hundred sheets of blank paper seem to be. Although I'd guess there are plenty of now plenty of you now who are nodding in perfect understanding. Uh, publishing publishing writers can of course have all the blank paper they want. It's their stock and trade. Uh, they're actually let's see, they have so much that they <laughs> exactly it's tax deductible. Uh, so. The other side of the coin, particularly to a young writer, is the almost unholy exhilaration that all that blank paper can bring on. You feel like an alcoholic contemplating a fifth of whiskey with the seal unbroken. And going back to Stephen King's personal life, he definitely was an alcoholic at this point. Yeah. So, oh, man. Um, well, he's talking about writer's block there, you know? Which, well, no. Well, at first he's talking about writer's block. And then he's but talking then about writer's... He, what's the, what's the opposite of writer's block called? Writer's too much? <laughs> Uh, I feel uh, like it's almost like (laughs) what is the joy to me it's like the joy of like freshly fallen snow it's like being able to put your footprints out there and the only thing you see is what you've actually laid down on the ground and it's like yeah yeah, it's it's like uh, seeing a I think at one point he describes it as just sort of like a haze in a fog that's sweeping through this swamp. And as you walk forward, you only see tiny bits at a time of like, as you walk forward, you might see a tree over there or you might see an alligator swimming towards you or you might see, you know, a a large rock to the left of the alligator. So you just you kind of leapfrog around the the perils and you see the the beautiful things that uh, are coming to you just one piece at a time. And I feel like that's the way that I kind of imagine writing as well. Oh my gosh. Ugh. During this whole podcast, it's like, maybe I should write. Maybe I should have been writing the whole time because like it, it is a journey, you know? And, and yeah. I, I think I oftentimes um, stop myself and said, nah, this, yeah. this sucks. It's no good. And I need to like push through. Exactly. Because I have ideas. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, uh, that's the thing. The an idea can always be polished, but uh, if you you know if you leave the the gem in the earth, it's not helping anybody. Very true. Got to dig it out, mm. and the only way to dig it out Gotta is dig to dig it out. In fact, doesn't he say exactly. that at one point coming forward with like a shovel or something? <laughs> Um, Something like that. I, I I might be pulling from another Stephen King story where he he used that analogy as he was describing. I think Tommy Knockers or something, uh, where you you see like a tiny edge of a story, and then as you start to dig away, there you reveal more and more of it, and then sometimes you might, uh, you know, you might uh, hit your shovel a little bit too close to the edge, and you might break a little bit of it. So then you have to kind of go a little bit further away, and then so there's always the the chance that some part of the story might get a little bit uh, ruined, but, you know, that's always the, the risk you take when you try to unearth something. Absolutely. Huh. Yeah. 
I love this. <laughs> I know. I'm mixing um, my metaphors, so, but who knows? That's all uh, fine. We're all, that's what we do here at Chapter Brothers. Um, I was I was at the time living in a scuzzy riverside cabin not far from the university, and I was living all by myself. The first third of the foregoing tale was written in ghastly, unbroken silence, which I now, with a house full of rioting children, two secretaries, and a housekeeper who always thinks I look ill, find hard to remember. The three roommates with whom I had begun the year had all flunked out. By March, when the ice went out of the river, I felt like the last of Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, I, I'm trying to understand his psyche in the writing process there. It's like, I'm trying to write a book and like all everybody I'm living with is like slowly going away and like flunking out. And, 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 and what do you say? An unghastly silence? Unbroken silence. Exactly. So like, well, true. The, uh, the, the silence came first and then the story. Have you ever like sat quietly like for an extremely long amount of time? It's I, I, one of my stories. I started on a plane ride. It's maddening, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, because the silence demands to be filled. So your your brain starts filling it with either like conversations that you had or self-doubts or whatever. Or sometimes if you're lucky, it fill, your brain fills it with a story. So then you have to like either type it out or hand write it out. A lot of the time uh, when I'm writing like a first draft, I'll just do it by hand because that feels more natural to me. Uh, and yeah, the, one of my, uh, well, is a, it was a Harry Potter fan fiction, uh, starring me and my, all my friends. And it was, uh, that I started that one on the plane. When was that from? I think that was the plane ride back from Spain. And, mm. uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I totally understand the, yeah. that silence, like de- it demands to be filled. So for me, um, when I moved out here to Seattle, uh, I moved out here with my buddy Justin, and um, uh, he would go back to New Jersey frequently because he had actually just fallen in love <laughs> before we left that summer, and he was like, oh, this is a bad idea. And then with his now <laughs> wife and son and back in New Jersey. But anyway, uh, so he, he kept going back to New Jersey, and I would be, like, sitting in the house by myself. Like, well, Gary was with me. Gary's a dog. Um, <laughs> but... I would spend hours and hours just without speaking and just like, you know, watching freaking Netflix or whatever. Um, and honestly, I like, I started to, to like lose my mind. I'm like, I need to speak. I need to talk to someone. So like, that's why I like kept going to karaoke and stuff. I like, I need to like, like, or, or you know, just the bar or whatever and talk to people and like sing songs and whatever. But there was a there was a moment. Uh, I think it was uh, the Christmas break of that year, winter break, um, where I didn't say a word to any other human being for about a week and a half, and I was like, oh, "Wow, this is <laughs> this is crazy!" Like, and during that yeah. time, though, like I felt very creative. And I started like writing things it's down. I, I lost it all, but like I, this is when I was oh. like, maybe I'll become a stand-up comedian. Let me start writing down like you know, like my ideas for like my life and like the funny things that have gone on in my life and stuff like that. But I don't know. I uh, had that urge myself. Yeah. <laughs> but novels themselves are, are are just about writing about your life and and the uh, the struggle we all have in life in general. You know. I don't know. But yeah. being quiet for a while does bring out um, um, inspiration. 
you know? Certainly, yeah. Uh, those two factors, the challenge that blank green paper and the utter silence, except for the trickle of the melting snow as it ran downhill into the still water, were more responsible than anything else for the opening lay of the Dark Tower. There was a third factor, but without the first two, I don't believe the story ever would have been written. The third element was a poem. I'd been assigned two years early. Sorry. I'd been assigned two years earlier in a sophomore course covering the early romantic poets. And what better time to study romantic poetry than in one's sophomore year? <laughs> Most of the other poems had fallen out of my consciousness in the period between, but that one, gorgeous and rich and inexplicable, remained, and it remained still. That poem was Child Rolling by Robert Browning. So that, that's how we started the episode, talking about Child Roland by Robert Browning. Because that's where we get Roland from, our, our, the gunslinger. Precisely. Yeah. Our, our protagonist slash anti-hero slash hero, who knows? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, mm. Kevin, did and you also, get... just a short tangent, uh, just looked up the word etymology of sophomores. Uh, apparently, it was originally a compound word that combines the wisdom of sophistes uh, with the Greek word moros, meaning moron. So basically, <laughs> it means a wise fool. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I think back in my days in college and like how I thought I knew a lot and realized that I know nothing at all. It's like, uh, you know, this uh, uh, body of water is a mile wide, but it's an inch deep, you know? Mm -hmm. Jack of all (laughs) trades, master of none. Sophomoric. Well, sophomoric is the term, right? Precisely, yes. Sophomoric means immature. Yeah, so it's exactly right. The, well, the that's a quote that uh, our dad used to uh, say a bunch that uh, he got from Mark Twain. Um, when I was 18, uh, I... What was it? When I was 18, I knew everything there was to know, and my father was an idiot. And then when I was 21, I was amazed to how much he had learned in three years. <laughs> that's good. Oh, Dad! Yeah. I, I would like to. I'm, I'm going to give Dad a call after we're done uh, with today because we should give Dad a call. Yeah. Um, so, Child Roland in the Dark Tower came. Child Roland to the, the Dark Tower came. Child Roland, yeah. Child Roland to the Dark Tower came by Robert Browning. Um, it's child with an e at the end. So this is written um, in 1852, 1855. You said. Um, so there's a lot of uh, kind of old English flair, would, would you call that, or Middle English? Because as you look at the um, the writings of many words, there's like a lot of uh, different spellings than we use today. There are. Do, do you have it brought up? Uh, I do. I have it up on, on my screen right now. Uh, I, though I would say uh, child doesn't literally mean a, a small uh, person. In this case, the in this context, okay. chi- child with an E would mean like a knight on a crusade. Oh, okay. That actually changes... Everything, mm. <laughs> and it, it totally, it to- yeah, it totally sums up uh, Roland Deschain as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, because when when I looked at, it, I was like, "Child Roland," like, it's like, because th- this whole thing, as you read it, it, it's not coming from a child's point of view. But I think that that informed Stephen King as he read it. Because I'm, as I was reading this poem, I was trying to think of Stephen King when he was in college. Mm. You know. And um, him being inspired by, like, this is an interesting story. 
where where would I go with this next? Exactly. Like, what happens now? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or like, because uh, from what I've read, um, it's definitely very flowery prose and he goes very much into the internal monologue of the character. But there's very little like plot, really. It's kind of like he... It's no, yeah, yeah. So I feel like Stephen King's mentality would have been sort of okay. So we see uh, we're hearing about Child Roland to the Dark Tower came, and he's doing this research. So technically, uh, according to the Wikipedia, at least uh, a child uh, in this context is the eldest son of a nobleman who has not yet attained knighthood or who has not yet won his spurs. Quote. Um, so he's exactly wrong. Yeah, kind of like uh, son of a nobleman. Uh, he's a gunslinger. So uh, yeah, sort of like. Well, I mean, he's he's definitely become a gunslinger. So I feel like that would be the knight thing. Yeah, but you get to him, him, you know, beating courts and you know walking out the, the east side of the, the courts or mm. I forget which side, but it's like the gunslinger side, and that's all we know. At that point, ooh, interesting. More. According to this, uh, that's why this story is so good. Mm, true. <laughs> to go back into even even further back in time, the title "Child Roland to the Dark Tower" came, which forms the last words of the poem, is a line from William Shakespeare's play King Lear. In the po- in ah. in the play, Gloucester's son Edgar lends credence to his disguise as Tom of Bedlam by talking nonsense. In which this is a part: "Child Roland to the Dark Tower came." His word was still fifo and fum i smell the blood of an englishman so in this case according to this in king lear child roll into the dark tower king is a little bit of a jack of the beanstalk thing so okay yeah so it's an even even further complicating the mythology of this story yeah well this is this is where writing and science is combined in my mind because um we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm. So we're, we're looking at these former works and we're like, how can I build on this? How can I build on this? Ooh, that's a, that's a cool line. How can I build on that? Mm. And that's like, even the idea of fan fiction, that's, this is fan fiction. Yeah. Because his, his, he was a fan of Robert Browning and Robert Browning was a fan of Shakespeare. William Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> and Shakespeare was just talking nonsense. And that's, that's why, that's why I love writing chaotically because you never oh, really man. know where it's going to come from. So, and you never where, know where it's going to go. So that's, uh, oh. that's why I, I have always been a, you know, just start with nothing and start with a blank page, just start typing and see what happens. And that's, that's always been my yeah. process. Yeah. Which is also probably and, uh, part of the reason why I never get past chapter one. So yeah, that's, it's a double edged sword. <laughs> Albert Einstein was standing on the shoulders of Isaac Newton, who was standing on the shoulders of Galileo, who was on the shoulders of uh, Leonardo da Vinci mm-hmm. and Aristotle, know, and, yeah. ba- and back in, and to back to Socrates, uh, Aristotle yeah. or Archimedes, Archimedes or whoever, yeah, to like be fair. you know, the scientific Greeks <laughs> rather than the philosophical Greeks, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so I read through the whole, um, and then I listened to it. Ooh, actually, nice. there's a guy. Who, who does a, a reading of it and it's beautiful mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like and it makes me want to read it because like it, it does have a good uh, like meter mm-hmm. it, it's like a song pretty much like all poems or songs you know mm-hmm. um, oh, man. I, I'm just trying to pick a stanza oh I, I have a few uh, that I took notes okay, from so, yeah so go ahead 
Well, so, so, so can I just read the first stanza sure. and try to get the, the meter and figure it out? I remember A B B A A B. Got it. <clears throat> My first thought was he lied in every word. That hoary cripple with malicious eye, askance to watch the working of his lie. On mind and mouth scarce able to afford suppression of the glee that pursed and scored. Its edge at one more victim gained thereby. And, and like, oh, like I want to sing this. Mm. Like, but it, you realize it's very long. We, it's we, quite we can't long. do that. Yeah, we that, can't do the whole thing. That would be a very boring podcast if we were doing the rhyme of the ancient mariner or something. I mean, that's that's another one of my favorites. So I wouldn't say no to that. <laughs> but I, I just like to hear that, like rhyme and, and meter and rhythm and stuff, and and like I want to make this into a song. But um, just just to go very long just to song. go down a real quick tangent about to rhyme of the ancient mariner. I just love my favorite part of that whole story is basically that outside of a wedding, uh, there are two people who are talking. One of them just gets grabbed by this old guy who looks like he's insane. Other guy runs off, and then he listens to the old uh, the the ancient mariner to tell him this whole long epic poem as this guy is just waiting outside a wedding like uh, okay <laughs> that's the that's the frame story of rather than uh, the ancient mariner uh, uh, okay uncle okay uncle, Ga- so uncle kevin, jeff yeah okay. <laughs> so kevin you know that i'm a, a pretty friendly person you are indeed and i love to talk to strangers you are the so you are the extroverted extreme the to my introverted extreme yes <laughs> I will sit there outside of the bar and talk to all the homeless people and just get their stories. Mm. And they're <laughs> fascinating one guy stories. Who knows yeah. A crap ton about physics. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm teaching a physics class next year. He's like, and he got like really focused. And I was like, nice. I'm going to listen to your story because I'm going to learn something right now. <laughs> I mean, th- th- there's your book right there. Just uh, talking to like the the words of the homeless. Yeah. And just like one at a time hearing like what they've all got to say, because I'm sure it would have been fascinating. Yeah. Not even homeless. Just it's just people. Yeah. People are people. Exactly. Man. People are people. Peoples is peoples. Peoples is peoples. <laughs> <laughs> Muppets take Manhattan. Muppets take Manhattan. Right. <laughs> um, so, so which stanzas did you want to focus on? Because I was looking at a couple and he, he mentions the dark tower of course of course yeah the, um, uh still well the the version that i was reading um at the end of book seven of the dark tower he in like the afterward he includes the full poem so the one that i read oh, okay, has cool, the stanzas cool. broken up by no roman numerals did yours uh, no, nah, I wish it was. No, it's just it's just a just straight one narrative. Full long thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The so yeah. based on well, that, I, I can count. Yeah. So stanza three <laughs> is the first time that mentions the dark tower, where it says, uh, mm-hmm. um, "Let's see." Oh, I, I also like how he rhymes uh, "agree" with "acquiescingly." Yeah, <laughs> that, <laughs> that is a that is a stretched rhyme if I ever heard one. <laughs> well, <laughs> which all agree rhyme. acquiescingly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's not quite, it's definitely not like a pentameter type of uh, a rhythm scheme, so I'm not quite sure what the, like, if it has the same number of syllables well, just, per line. The, the, the way this guy read it, you, you got to listen to it after we're done here today, Kev, mm-hmm. uh, because when you hear the audio, and I'll post it on the, on the Facebook, actually, um, it's amazing how he, well, I'll post it when we post this episode, but... Um, 
<laughs> when you hear this, he's got a wonderful voice. And he's like, like it, it, it does sound like it, it's got that iambic pentameter. But I think you're right. Iamb- yeah, I think iambic. it is iambic. No, because I'm yeah. saying my first thought was he lied in every word. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So yeah, that's a pentameter of like you know, uh, and uh, a down syllable followed by an up syllable. Pentameter because it a- no, because it's it's uh, the the pentam means like pairs of five. Of like a down syllable followed by an up, uh, 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 well, uh, uh, a you know the accent uh, like an unaccented syllable followed by an accented syllable five times. Down and up, down and up. I yeah. understand that five times, but I think this might be uh, iambic. If at his council I should turn aside, uh, heptameter. I think it, I think it's seven syllables. Is it? Instead of five. My first thought was he lied into in that every ominous word. track, which all agree. Oh, that one's ten. Yeah, I think it's ten. So, so no, it's ten on the B's and seven on the A's. I think. I did turn as he with... pointed. Neither pride, neither pride. Uh, hmm. But like I said, it might not be 100% constant all the way throughout, yeah. If at his council, I should turn aside. I mean, the ones that I'm seeing are usually about 10. But in any case, point being that, uh, you know, it's very melodic and uh, I could see how the, the meter attributes itself to a musical reading. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so... Yeah. Yeah, stanza three, first time he mentions uh, the Dark Tower, where he says, If at his council I should turn aside into that ominous tract which all agree hides the Dark Tower, yet acquiescingly I did turn as he pointed, neither pride nor hope rekindling at the end descried. Uh, you are such a prose guy. Oh, I am, totally. Rather than a... a yeah, because <laughs> you're like, I just wanted to know what this is about, not like the 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 yes, the it's sound it's beautifully it. written. But we right here, our the focus of the the podcast is the the dark tower. So I'm like, okay, give me the nouns, give me the give me the story. Yeah, I want to pull it out of what, what are you talking yeah. about, man? <laughs> you're being a little too poetic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah give me give me some uh, specifics. Well, yeah. that Tolkien. So Tolkien does a whole bunch of uh, like. The Lord of the Rings is written in prose style, and The Hobbit's written in prose style. But he also did these uh, lays that he called them, the like the, the lay of Lathian, the lay of this, that, and mm. and they're they're poems, and they're written in meter, and it's oh, oh yeah, it's just lovely. They might even so, be songs, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, do the deep dive into Tolkien. Oh. That's that's where you need, oh. that's where you need to go. Exactly. When when <laughs> we get to the Silmarillion, don't you worry, we definitely will. Ooh, actually, or should we read them chronologically and start with the Hobbit and then do Lord of the Rings and then do the Silmarillion? Hmm. Well, I guess. Chron- yeah, probably actually. Yeah, do the Hobbit first. Yeah, because I, I oh, oh, the Lave Luthien. Sorry, yeah. I, I said that incorrectly. Mm. Right? Baron and Luthien, sorry. Right, exactly. The what? What eventually? A <laughs> hundred Tolkien fans are yelling right now. Like, no, you said it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> True. What eventually became the story of uh, Aragorn and uh, what's her name? Uh, um, uh, ooh, Arwen. Arwen, yeah. And, Arwen. and well, which in turn, I think, was. which in turn, I think, was based on uh, Tolkien and his wife. Yeah. Well, at at their gravestone. Mm. 
Baron and Luthien. Yeah. Uh, ba- Baron and Baron and Luthien. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a story for a different day. And but anyway, we'll, it, we'll, we'll get to the dark tower. <laughs> we'll get to uh, Lord of the Rings. Don't you worry. But uh, so the th- so yeah, stanza seven is the first time mentions is the second time he mentions the dark tower, where he says the knights who to the dark tower search addressed, and um, yes. let's see. Oh, oh uh, so many times among the band. Yes, to wit. So basically, kind of Which, this whole group uh, I, of uh, knights, sort knights of like knights of the round, the round table, exactly, going along their quest to the Grail. Yeah. But in this case, the Grail is not eternal life, but it's this dark tower. What hmm? is your favorite color? <laughs> Sorry. What is the airspeed of an unladen swallow? <laughs> hmm. Uh, Asian or European? I don't know. Oh, ah! Could have been it was an African swallow. <laughs> what is your quest? What is your name? <laughs> but yeah, there's a niche one just gets thrown off. Ah, what was that? The, the bridge of death? Probably. <laughs> it was something like that. It's been oh, so long since I saw that movie. Easy. <laughs> what is your favorite color? Blue. Okay. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> oh, all right. Blue. Yellow! <laughs> I think who's that Galahad who goes? Uh, yeah, Galahad. Yeah, that was uh, or Robin. Michael Palin, I yeah. forget. <laughs> True, I know. I know their names better than their characters. Yeah. The only reason I bring this up is because you said something about Roland and King Arthur, and, and we talked about Merlin and all that. So true. I forget. Did Merlin get actually- subtracted in the the new version? I think he did. Oh well, I remember reading it. It, it, it was no, it's it was, in the it's in the old um, version. But spelled I, Marilyn or something. Precisely, oh, I yeah. right to the right page. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, and what's his name? Marilyn. The man in black said softly, and somewhere in the easterly darkness. Blah 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 blah. Yeah, Marilyn. And and uh, uh, before that, it said he came to me in days before the old ones had yet to cross the sea in a land called England. You know, just right there. You know. Marilyn or Merlin so. uh, the peek behind the curtain in in real time it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded that last episode oh yeah sometimes I forget what I say sometimes I forget what I say when I talk to people from like the day before I know uh, what's your name again me too I'm so sorry <laughs> oh yes in the new version he changes Marilyn to and what is his name Legion so the the stranger is Legion. yeah. The, oh, so the, in the new version, the stranger is no longer uh, Merlin or uh, a you know uh, anglicized uh, old English version of Merlin. So he didn't want to uh, give that away too early. Either he didn't want to give it away, or he changed his mind entirely. I'm not quite sure. Ooh, so we will see. Yeah, I guess we'll. F- oh, I'll find out. Find you out. already know. Mm. <laughs> so we'll find out. So past that, uh, the the version, the in terms of like the the poetry that I personally like from this poem, uh, I shut my eyes and turned them on my heart as a man calls for wine before he fights. I asked one draft of earlier happier sights ere fitly I could hope to pay to play the part. Think first, fight afterward. This soldier's art, one taste of the old time, sets all to rights. And I just love that. Just the the idea mm. of it of sort of before going into battle you have to think about the good times you have to you need something to kind of spur you along on your quest to kind of remind you of why you're fighting and then after that is the first time that he talks about uh his old friends Cuthbert mm. and whatnot yeah. mm. and by the way kevin yep. 
in in the reading when I was listening to the guy say it. He said Cuthbert. He said Cuthbert. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna officially uh, agree that that's how it's pronounced. So. I mean, it, I am <laughs> never always Cuthbert yeah. in my mind, but like. True. I always do my like, I remember when I was younger, I used to be very much of this is right and this is wrong. And if you do it any way other than the right way, it's wrong. So I definitely have gone away from that mentality. So I, I like to say that, you know, it all depends on the person. And some Cuthberts might be Cuthberts, some Cuthberts might become Cuthbert. So it, uh, yeah. yeah. I teach their own. But exactly. like, it was good to hear it again. I was like, Cuthbert, that's that was Kevin says it. That's all I'm going to keep saying it mm-hmm. is that it must be the right way <laughs> but right wrong whatever yeah <laughs> uh, we don't have to be wait, pedantic I'll, about it not it I fancied Cuthbert's reddening face beneath its garniture of cur- curly gold dear fellow till I almost felt him fold an arm in mine to fix to the place that's why he used alas one night's disgrace out went my heart's new fire and left it cold that way he used um that way he used, alas, one night's disgrace. Out went my heart's new fire and left it cold. Uh, boo. So does that mean Cuthbert is going to... Because they also men- mentioned something about suicidal something later on. Oh, I don't remember that part. Uh, the way that I read it was... Uh, let's see. I fancied Cuthbert's reddening face beneath its garniture of curly gold. So he's got redding... His face is turning red. He's got curly go- curly blonde hair. Uh, Dear fellow, till I almost felt him fold an arm in mine to fix me to the place that way he used. So it's basically like Cuthbert is like... Uh, Sort of like the two of them are like arm in arm, and uh, Roland is looking back the, uh, that way he used. So, like, Cuthbert has died at this point, so he's imagining the way they used to kind of like walk arm in arm. Uh, well, the, the way I read it, Kevin, is that way he used to end his life. Oh. That way he used. Interesting. I don't know. Mm. I, uh, I don't know Cuthbert's fate in the books, but yeah, uh, alas, one night's disgrace out went my heart's new fire and left it cold. So basically, in at the basically saying this one night, uh, my heart's new fire went out and left it cold, uh, which kind of implies that uh, Roland and Cuthbert were in love or something. Or maybe I'm just kind of reading it with a, a modern. Perhaps. Uh, a modern eye, mm. uh, but also could have been just in well, the. Remember, this is Robert Browning. This isn't Stephen King. We're just, <laughs> you know, like, but, uh, but in um, that in that sense of romantic poetry, where you know you have your love for your fellow comrade in arms, so it kind of goes beyond mm. just uh, friendship to like stronger than it's interesting that we're calling it romantic poetry, oh gosh, but it might not necessarily be romantic. Again. Sorry. Exactly. Yes, exactly what I was thinking of. Uh, Frodo and Sam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Frodo and Sam and, uh, well, Tolkien and his buddies in yeah. World War One. In World War One, yeah, like, as Batman, yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, but in any case, so... Oh. 
me being Mr. Uh, you know, uh, searching for any kind of links to the Dark Tower and looking for nouns, immediately afterwards we've got Giles then, the soul of honor, there he stands. Frank, as ten years ago, when knighted first. Uh, so we've got a couple of people who didn't make it into the Stephen King uh, story, Giles and Frank. Uh, but then immediately mm-hmm. after, the next line says, what honest men should dare, he said he durst. Wait, 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 wait. Time out, time out, time out. No, 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 no. Frank is not a person. Oh, Frank is, a, Frank is the description of Giles. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me be Frank. You know, gotcha. like that's, okay. I think that's what he's saying. <laughs> True. Meanwhile, in, in uh, my head, I was, I saw, as soon as I saw Durst, there was and a then guy went named Frank, to, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a guy named Frank Durst. Yeah. Fred Durst's father from Limp Biscuit. <laughs> Frank, but, my buddy Frank. No, no, no. Yeah. He was Frank as 10 years ago when Night at First. Like, there, so he stands he, just talking Frank about Giles. as 10 years ago. Exactly, yes. Stands Frank as 10 years. <laughs> True. Oh, cool. This is fun. I, I love reading a poem with you. Um, <laughs> this is the thing that uh, when you capitalize every letter of the, when you capitalize the oh, first letter yeah. of every line, it can get a little bit confusing, at least in my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. You got to pay it. To, yep. The, the yep, punctuation yep. becomes much more important than the capitalization. Um, but yes. So then uh, a little bit later, uh, it says, what hangman hands pin to his breast a parchment? Uh, his own bands read it. Poor traitor spit upon and cursed. So immediately, once we've got a traitor being hanged, I got to think back to our old buddy from uh, what's his Hacks. name? Hacks, Hacks the cook. Exactly. Hacks uh, the cook. Yeah. yeah. So we go a little bit further down. Flowery prose, flowery prose. This is a good way to like review the whole book, actually, mm. Kev. <laughs> you know, because he does talk about like walking across a desert and uh, meeting somebody, and then uh, is there a talk of an oracle in here? I don't know. Uh, but, like kind <laughs> of the this uh, whatever this uh, hoary old cripple that he's talking about who lied in every word oh, yeah. uh, that could be theoretically talking about. Uh, the Oracle, technically. Brown. Yeah, or Brown. Or mm. Oracle, or maybe, maybe Brown maybe the is the Black. Oracle. Who knows? Maybe this whole thing. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Well, because we find out in the last uh, chapter that the Man of Black could shapeshift, right? If he went from Walter to becoming Martin, or sort I of, don't yeah. understand that Or still. went from Martin to becoming Walter, or... It was, he, that's one of the yeah. retcons that oh, yeah, he changes his mind Walter. about. Yeah. Um... Either way, the man in black is dead. We've we've taken his jawbone. Mm. There, there was definitely right? bones it's, it's with ten, uh, ten years later. Yeah, Roland uh, with some gray in his beard. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. but uh, gr- graying in the temples. In the temples, correct. Yeah, he was clean shaven. That's true. <laughs> so another thing. Yeah, how that, is he shaving? Uh, anyway. Uh, so a, a little <laughs> bit later. True. Section 21, uh, which while I forded, um, no, wait, hang on. Uh, the river, which had done them all wrong, what air there was rolled by, deterred no wit, which while I forded, good saints, how I feared to set my foot upon a dead man's cheek, each step or feel the spear I thrust to seek, uh, for hollows tangled in his hair or beard. It may have been a water rat I speared, but oh, it sounded like a baby's shriek. So basically that whole 
hole mm. kind of thing where he's kind of going across this water where uh, as we were talking about uh, before the the uh, Lord of the Rings reference of uh, you know don't uh, don't go into the water uh, don't follow the lights well, also uh, the slow mutants there, 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 slow was, mutants. A, there was a little river rush, rushing past them and mm-hmm. stuff so yeah, yeah so that's um, that, that that's what brought my brought to my mind yeah scary imagery of like you know being in a place that you yeah walking past you know. a battlefield as you're walking past corpses yeah mm-hmm. or at least that's what uh well, it made again, me think this was 1855 and robert browning is british i'm assuming yes um hmm. i'm trying to think of like battles that happened before then there's many so true i'm not very <laughs> well versed in british hast- history uh <laughs> I love Hastings. Or, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's one. There's all types of things. Uh, well, the British were colonizers, so they were exactly. Often oh no, war, Battle of Hastings was in 1066, so not even close. <laughs> it's it's something. <laughs> it is part of British that's history. That's more of a Shakespeare reference, but even it's still 400 years before Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah, I, what was I talking about? Um, uh, so, so on that list, I, was I talking to you about this? Like, list of uh, movies that aren't acceptable anymore. Mm. And it was definitely written by somebody who's like very young. And it's like, and, and most of them like, oh uh, yeah, that, that it's not cool to like talk about. You know, in Ace Ventura when they talk like, oh gross, precisely, and, yeah. Uh, Finkel's a man. It's like, yeah. oh, that's not cool. Nope. Let's. Yeah, let's not make that kind of movie anymore. But one of the ones, so Liz and I were going through this list and we're like, what is offensive about this movie or whatever? But one of them was Gone with the Wind. True, Mammy. The, and, uh, uh, half of the slaves in that movie, yeah. Yes, exactly. And and glorifying kind of the antebellum South or whatever. And, and I was like, eh, all right, whatever. But then I got to thinking, I was like, actually, Gone with the Wind is closer to the Civil War then we are to Gone with the Wind. Correct, yeah. Now. <laughs> so, obviously, times have changed and everything, but, like, then, you know, when you make a movie, it's... The, the, the sentimentalities are different and everything. True. I don't know why I got on this topic. Let's move on with the poem. So, yes, the... <laughs> let's see. So, that was one of the other uh, sections that I highlighted that I... You know, really liked. Uh, that seemed Dark Tower relevant at the very least. Uh, mm-hmm. So, let's see. Oh, there, there's the suicide reference that you said. Um, so petty, yet so spiteful all along. Low, scrubby alders kneeled down over it. Uh, drenched willows flung them headlong in a fit of mute despair, a suicidal throng. The river, which had done them all wrong, whate'er there was, rolled by, deterred no whit. Oh yeah, the, and then that's the the section that I was talking about. So I yeah. don't think it literally means suicide. I think it's more talking about kind of soldiers like running towards whatever battle or whatever their goal is. Kind of almost more. I would say it's more in like like a a Viking frenzy or kind of like a kamikaze type thing where you're sprinting mm, towards whatever your kamikaze yeah. is. What I was thinking. Mm. But I feel like yeah. that's not really necessarily suicide in the in the sense that we think of it nowadays, where kind of driven to end your life because you find your life torture. I think it was more driven to end your life in in service of a greater goal than yourself. So I feel like it's it's a different context entirely. 
Yeah, I, I'm sorry I brought it up, but I, I no, just no, remember no. seeing that uh, adjective yeah. at one point. I was like, "Well, oh, why is it? Why did he use that word?" Mm. Um, but I feel like it highlights more what's going on in this section of the poem that he's kind of going past this ancient battlefield of uh, where all of these uh, dead soldiers are lying around on the way to this dark tower. That this child Roland seems to be the only one who can actually get there. And child being a knight. Again. Correct, yes. Like, or an unknighted one of, one of nobleman. Knights. Yeah. Yeah. One of the knights of the round table we don't hear about. It's like the side story. True. We, we hear about Lancelot yeah. and Galahad and, and Gawain or whatever, but we don't hear about yeah. Roland. What, what did Roland do? Galahad and Percival. <laughs> uh, actually, now. Well, I think let's that's see. where Steve. Stephen King's uh, mind probably went as, as a young writer. It was like. I don't know. There was all these other knights of the round table that we maybe didn't hear about. Mm. Let me write a whole story about this guy. He was able to like travel through time, I guess. I don't know. So <laughs> now I I'm still f- because I get uh, caught up on everything. Now I have to list all of the knights of the round table. Uh, so let's see. We have <laughs> Sir Acalon, Aglaval, Sir Aglavale, uh, Agravain, Arthur Pendragon, the king, uh, Bagdemagus, Bedivere. Bors the Younger, Brunor, Cador, uh, Caligrinent, uh, Caradoc, Claudin, Constantine the Third, uh, Arthur's cousin and successor to the throne, uh, Dagonet, Daniel von Blumenthal. Never would have th- thought Daniel Blumenthal would have been one of the Knights of the Brown Table, but uh, let's see. Daniel? Yeah, <laughs> literally what it says here. Uh, a knight found in an early German it's offshoot the most regular of the name we've had so Arthurian far. legend. Okay, so uh, let's see. I guess Arthur is a pretty regular name, too. <laughs> so, oh wait, hang, hang on. This can't be common members of the Knights of the Round Table, okay? Because uh, then we've got Ector, the uh, let's see, uh, the one who actually this raised is an alphabetical King Arthur. order. This is alphabetical order, yes. So, yeah. Ector, who raises Arthur according to Merlin's command, father of K, uh, Elian the White, Eric. Esclabor, uh, Ferafiz, Gaharis, Galahad, Galaholt, or Galahut, uh, Galashin, Gareth. So, so the round table, it's a, uh, wait, wait, this is a deep out. table. Um, the, we, so this is we got many multiple levels gener- of this generations. Table. <laughs> this is more of a round uh, arena. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> we've, we've got stadium seating at this point. Uh, Let's see. Gareth Gawain, of course. I think it's I think it's generations, generations mm. are going on. Geraint, you know? yeah, anyway. Gawain, Gawain, the Green Knight. Exactly, right? yeah. Gawain and the Green Knight. Sir Gawain, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like Another line, son yeah. of King Lot and Morgaus, father of Gingalane. Okay, so Gawain is the father of Gingalane. Uh let's yeah, see. Exactly. Gornamont, so generations. Griflet, of- Hector Damaris, Whole K. Lamorak, Lancelot, finally, somebody, another name we recognize. Right. Lenval, Leo de Grance, Lionel, Lucan, Maligant, Mordred, uh, Arthur's illegitimate son, uh, Morholt, uh, Moraine, Palamedes, uh, Peleus. Moraine? Wait, time out. Uh, Moraine was the. It's a woman, right? Mm, uh, do you, are, are you thinking of Morgan Le Fay? Uh, that's one thing. Though. Yeah. Sorry, I, I thought it was the the yeah yeah. No, never mind. The lady okay. of the lake. Uh, Continue because the lady of the lake. That, that's what. Uh, it's a marine. Yeah. And also, what was the name of the desert? 
The, the Mohim Desert. Yes. So, very similar. Uh, so then we have Peleus, Pelinor, Percival, Saphir, Sagramore, Sagwarides, uh, Tor, Tristan, so no Rollins, Urain, Evane, and Evane the Bastard. So no, no Roland. Yes. Okay. I was hoping there was a Roland coming up. I was like, ah, darn it. True. <laughs> then there's a whole list here of even lesser knights who there are about five times as many of number, but again, oh still no yeah. Roland. I won't go through all of those. No Roland but no. in, in, in the list. No, no, no. Please don't. Yeah. How about squires? <laughs> we've yeah, we've got enough. A list of squires and pages. <laughs> squires, pages, <laughs> uh, bards, and whatnots now. But uh, yeah. But in any case, uh, Child Roland is walking past this battlefield to the Dark Tower at last. Uh, then we get to the description of the tower itself. Uh, there they stood, ranged along the hillsides met, to view the last of me, a living frame, for one more picture in a sheet of flame. I saw them, and I knew them all, and yet, dauntless, dauntless the slughorn to my lips I set, and blew, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. Hmm. We jumped right to the end, I realized. <laughs> True. Uh, the, the part I was talking about wasn't quite that far, but uh, there is... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, got, I went way too far. True. The part I was talking <laughs> about was uh, bur- uh, Burningly. It came on me all at once. There, w- This was the place. Those two hills on the right, couched like two bowls, locked horn in, f- locked horn, in horn in fight, where, while to the left, a tall scalped mountain... Dunce dotard, a, do- a dozing at the very nonce. After a life spent training for the for the sight, what in the midst lay but the tower itself? The round squat turret, blind as the fool's heart, built of brown stone without a counterpart in the whole world. The tempest mocking self, mocking elf, uh, points to the shipman, thus the unseen shelf. He strikes on only when the timbers start. Uh, so basically... He, he's walking along his way. He sees these hills and he's like, what am I talking? Oh, I'm such an idiot. I was falling asleep at the wheel and there's the tower right in front of me. This, uh, but it, <laughs> And it's interesting that uh, in the poem it's described as... Dotard a dozing. Yeah. Dotard <laughs> a dozing Wait, at the very nuts. Dotard yeah. a dozing. Such great alliteration Agreed. in this whole poem. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Where, yeah, in this poem, it's described as a round squat turret. And this dark tower isn't even what we would describe as a tower nowadays. It's just sort of like a cylindrical building. Uh, but yeah. So yeah. And then... Uh, the, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. Um, yeah, the section right before then, um, before where you were reading, let's see... Yeah. Um, not here. What noise was everywhere? It tolled increasingly like a bell. Names in my ears of all the lost adventurers, my peers. How such an one was strong, or how such was bold, and such was fortunate. Yet each of old, lost, lost, one moment knelled the woe of years. So basically, as he comes towards the tower, he is mm. listing off all of the names of his friends and adventurers who fell along the way. Yeah, this is ah, oh, this is totally Roland. Like, like he, he's like t- thinking about his uh, lost friends and stuff along the the way, and and the revolution that happened, and whatever. I, I guess we'll find out as we continue as to we read. Can. But and oh. has and uh, as uh, knelled. Uh, yeah, like the mm-hmm. for like a knelling of a bowl of a of a blah, the knelling of a of a bell tolling. I think is what my mind. Oh, I got gotcha. you. 
now. Lost. the woe of years. Ugh. Yeah, and then was the the stains I read mm. to, to finish it off. But oh, gosh. Yeah, it, it, this is a, a wonderful poem, and I can see how Stephen King was inspired. Exactly. Like, and, and how all writers should be inspired when they they read something from the past. And you're like, oh, that's cool. How can I build on that? Mm, exactly. Yeah, and same same thing is like teaching science to the kids, and it's like. I'm going to tell you about like the history of how we came up with atomic theory and, yeah. and like how Niels Bohr like built on like uh, whoever uh, Enrico Fermi or um, and built on uh, Einstein built on that and everybody else like learn from the past and make it better as as the future goes on you know and that's where that's where writing's going I hope. It made me sad when you said that you're like, I think there's a way less percentage of actual writers today. I would say so. Um, and I think you're, I think you're right about that. Mm. And so let's inspire more people to write. Indeed. And I mean, I know that the, I mean, maybe it's just the fact that the platform of the written word on, you know, books of paper is probably diminishing that. I think it's more nowadays the the writings are it's somewhere on the internet or uh, being sent to you know directly to uh, readers and self published books on Kindles or other uh, digital marketplaces and like that. Or, or like I said, th- yeah, there is a lot of writers out there. It's just so diluted that you're not actually you have to really search to find something that's great. Exactly. You know, because there, you, have to, you have to sift through a whole bunch of garbage to get to uh, the good stuff true. these days. True, true. <laughs> and, and back then it was in order to get published, you had to be really good. Right. You know, so. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. So eh. there's our analysis. Anyway, so there's our analysis of Child Rule into the Dark Tower game. Uh, it specifically oh, in reference man. to I, this I'm book. I'm glad yeah. we did that. Uh, <laughs> me too. Yeah. Uh, it's going to important. like <laughs> I, I won't say anymore. Uh, but yes. So that was Stephen King's springboard. <laughs> there would be other things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that, that was his like uh, storyboard too. It's like okay, here's this one idea. Let me build off of that. Yeah. And oh, as he says so cool. here, I had played with the idea of trying a long romantic novel embodying the feel, if not the exact sense, of the Browning poem. Play was as far as things had gone because I had too many other things to write. Poems of my own, short stories, newspaper columns, God knows what. But during that spring semester, a sort of hush fell over my previously create, previously busy creative life. Not a writer's block, but a sense that it was time to stop goofing around with a pick and shovel and get behind the controls of one big great god almighty steam shovel a sense that it was time to try and dig something out of the dig something big out of the sand even if the effort turned out to be a bit an abysmal failure so yeah exactly there's your uh the shovel metaphor uh the big shovel it's time to dig deep and then like let's get into this indeed and the first thing that he uncovers one night march of 1970 mm-hmm. uh in that old office model underwood with a chip dem and the flying capital o and write the words that begin this story <laughs> the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed oh, oh, love it there it is indeed oh wait and so there's the the, the broken m mm-hmm. that we talked about exactly one of our first trivia but what does a flying capital o mean is i feel like, like anytime he typed capital o is just a little higher yeah, than the rest either a little bit higher or off off of the particular line so it might be a little bit uh you know askew 
Because <laughs> I, I remember like playing oh around with uh, the typewriter that Dad uh, had left in uh, the middle room closet. Oh, yeah. That all of like the keys as it would like go forward would all get kind of like stuck together. So it was, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. But but when you hit the shift and oh, like sometimes it. And would would it get like stuck? Shift in anything, it it it's it's gonna like like it takes a minute, and and it just means it was an old typewriter, right. you know, just like that. <laughs> I used to love playing with that thing. Mm. This works. This is an incredible piece of technology. Yeah, it's all <laughs> mechanical, and yeah, it's basically just you press the key and you have to really push it down. Exactly, and then the arm would like <laughs> shoot forward and like like literally just like pound into like the ribbon that's uh, typing out the words onto the piece of paper. Yeah, which was amazing technology for people compared to the printing press. Right. Which was the first thing. They're like, oh, well, we could do this faster, you know? Exactly. You know, that's where they came up with uh, uppercase and lowercase, right? Like how? They say, like, uppercase letters. So, like, uh, oh. the printing press would have a bunch of letters on the lowercase because you use them a lot. But then the uppercase is, like, an, another, like, Like a literal up. case in which yeah, they're sitting putting all of those letters. Say, oh, I'm going to go to the uppercase to get the capital letters because we don't use them as much and I don't have to, like put them in that's there fascinating. so that's uppercase and lowercase sure. and also uh in like the the way that we like talk about uh like text uh on screen like in graphics nowadays we would say that the letting in between uh like lines of text so it would be like the first line is here then the letting in between them uh and then the second line underneath that would be because there would be literal pieces of lead separating the typeface uh, like the actual things Wow, I didn't know that, and I'm just thinking about how, you know, uh, toxic lead is. Uh (laughs) This is probably a bad idea, guys. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, modern printing press, like, if you look into the history of the printing press, it's fascinating, I gotta say. Oh, Uh, Johannes Gutenberg. Indeed. Great guy. So let's see. So then he goes on to um, uh, talk a little bit more about how he never completely left the gunslinger's world. Even the, even after the thick green paper got lost, he still has the original 40 pages of the manuscript. uh, And, uh, then he would like still kind of come back to it in between like when uh, Salem's Lot was going badly he would write this one section when right after Danny Torrance uh, escaped uh, from his father that's when he wrote about uh, the sad end of Jake uh, so, so that, that that's also what I liked about um, well and then he, he talks about the stand too but, before the end of yeah, that paragraph the, the, how during um, the stand he didn't go back to the dark tower so I feel like kind of the stand being its own kind of like epic world kind of scratched that itch for him where I feel like the he's like oh I should go back to Roland and, and see what's up over there yeah. you know? like I feel like the stand <laughs> so is cool. I mean not, not the stand the shining is such basically more or less it's a haunted house story where uh, uh, and it doesn't quite have that same epic feel. And same thing with Salem's Lot is essentially a vampire story. So it doesn't have that kind of epic story structure of heroes and uh, battle. I like that he, he came back. Mm, agreed. I like that he came back to The Shining, mm. actually. Um, what was the sequel called again? Uh, uh, Doctor Sleep. Doctor Sleep. Yeah, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, oh, the... <laughs> 
It's time for the Stephen King trivia. <laughs> it <never ends>. <laughs> <laughs> it's always Stephen King trivia here. Um, oh man, and it also okay when it says and wrote of the boy Jake's sad ending. Like I was like, no, it's not true. It's impossible. Like it's, I don't think Jake is dead. I'm still holding on to hope. We'll see that Jake will come back. We shall see. We shall see. Um, but in this case, as yeah, uh, as um, he goes on to say, even Sting, Stephen King doesn't know. Yeah. yeah the, let's see. <sighs> yada yada. Um, like I. Okay. Wait, no, 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 no. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this paragraph real quick. Because <laughs> I just love his freaking voice. I know man. it's I, so I casual. Because Stephen King <laughs> wants you to know what he's going through, and Stephen King wants you to know what the writing process is like. Because he's yeah. inviting you in. He is. He is very much like pull up a chair. I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'm going to tell you how I yeah. came up with it. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I want I want to hang out with Stephen King, you and Dad, all in the room. That would be lovely. Yeah, <laughs> Matt could come too. Anybody can yeah. come if they want. But it, we can't have too big of a group. True. You know? Now we're getting the Knights of the, uh, the Knights of the Arena upper deck. Exactly, the Knights of the Kids Table. The Knights of the Kids Table. I always wanted to sit at the Kids Table, regardless of my age. I was like, I'd much rather just go hang out with the kids because I am a kid. <laughs> <laughs> True. That's definitely something we have in common. Yeah. What? 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 One of the movies on that list of like movies that wouldn't be made today is Big. And I was like, "What's wrong with Big?" And it's like, "Oh, the fact that the woman was trying to get with an eleven-year-old child, and then uh, yeah, yeah I guess, but whatever." But then, then I, lo- I looked at Liz and go, "How do you know that I'm not an eleven-year-old child?" <laughs> Perhaps I, I found a Zoltar machine and uh, <laughs> made a wish. Well, but I feel like... And she goes, you know what? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that, that's why I love the movie Big, because I feel like it's it's very much... Uh, not to go down another tangent, but I feel like Big... Rabbit yeah, hole. <laughs> big and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, I feel like, are the male and female sides of the same coin, where it's very much a story about yeah. imposter syndrome, about people who are entering the mm-hmm. workforce and they're like, I'm just a little kid and I'm surrounded by all these adults, but they don't realize that I'm just a kid in disguise. So it's a base, it's very much <laughs> like kind of the mentality of of like, well, uh, I don't belong here. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just me. I think of myself still as a high school kid and you know it very much kind it's, of strikes it's a, a, it's a common oh, trope totally. yeah. it's very much like a co- imposter yeah. It's yeah. Very, it very much kind of like calls out to this feeling that uh, millennials and gen x kind of like have of being like our parents were so like serious and they fought in a war or they protested a war or something that they did these like great and powerful things and we you know we've got the gulf war and we had kind of the uh you know, the Iraq-Afghanistan war and everything, but there was kind of a dis- disconnect with, uh, I feel like, most people that I feel like it, it, we, mm. it, there wasn't that that same sense of, 
you know, good and evil. It was just sort of like, well, things are much more complex nowadays. Like, I feel like World War II was very much kind of like good guys versus bad guys, the the allies versus the Axis. And then Vietnam was very much like, oh, well, this is the first time we're kind of seeing the horrors of war in everybody's living room at all, at all times. So it's very much kind of the... Um, it's an ambiguous nature of who's the good guy and the bad guy. Precisely, yeah. The first like, time... Wait a minute, why are we even doing this? Yeah, the first you time know? half of America yeah. was saying, maybe we're the bad guys, like, the and, like, protesting mm-hmm. against this war and, like, calling the, the veterans coming back, like, baby killers and whatnot and all of this stuff. So, oh, yeah, and, yeah. It, it, I feel like that by the time we got to, like, the, the first Gulf War in late 80s, early 90s, and then the Afghanistan-Iraq War after September 11th and everything the, it's, it's it's become such like a, a muddy kind of soup of things that it's not so much like there isn't a clear story anymore like there's so much kind of like intricacies of like well the soldiers might might be good people might be bad people the people sending them off to war might not have anybody's direct interests at heart either whether they're the people on the ground or the maybe like oil is the, the real like uh, thing that they're going going for so it becomes so much more complicated and postmodern if you will that it's uh yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot yeah. to consider it is yeah. tough. and i feel like i wish war wasn't a certainly thing. and uh but it, it is a lot more muddy these days exactly. like in a lot of ways i feel like uh and i don't want to get too much into like politics and mm-hmm. stuff but like you know i'm contemplating moving to another country because I don't know if I like this country. Yeah. I mean, there's so many times when, <laughs> so many times when I'll think about like, oh god, there's so many things wrong with America, whether it's this or that or this other thing, and then I'm like looking at other countries and I'm like, oh yeah, they don't have this, or they have this in a completely different way, or you know, you realize that mm. America isn't the entire well, world. That like, it's not like the, mm. I mean, the typical American like sensibility of like this is our baseline assumption of how things are, and then you look at other countries in the world and you realize that they they run things entirely differently there, there's <laughs> I was watching this video of a gentleman and, and this is from years ago and, and he's actually improved it a lot more now but uh, he's living in Malawi and um, uh, built a windmill uh, just out of like scrap parts and stuff and uh, was able to generate electricity for his, his small little village and I'm like this is fucked up because we have wonderful wind turbines here in this country. And this guy's just like built like, why can't we like share the technology that we have with the rest of the world? Like it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that everybody doesn't have everything that they could have. They don't have like access to clean, clean water and stuff. And why are we getting on this tangent, Kevin? I mean, this is is the way we go. Um, No, but before we before we close out this tangent, I just want to say that I feel like that kind of mentality, like, well, we have these gigantic wind turbines that can generate this much energy. But the problem is those turbines require so many resources to build and to maintain and whatnot that this person making it by hand to provide electricity to their village. It's it's a it's a closed ecosystem like. I've heard this saying one time that uh, if in order for all of the countries of the world to have the standard of living of America or a European country, it would take four other planet Earth's worths of resources to supply it. 
Mm. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So, okay, once again, we're the big exactly. problem then. <laughs> because we got to this level and it's like, oh, this is too, much. too much. And now the rest of the world wants what we want. And it's like, mm, we should probably just go back to being simple and sustainable. Exactly. Sustainability you know? is the key. Ugh. Yeah. And, but key. in any case, anyway. back to the Dark Tower. Back to um, simpler days of 1982. Yeah, afterward. Yeah, he wrote this afterward in 1982, right? right? When, when he compiled all three, or doo -doo, how many books? Sorry. Gunslinger, Waystation, Oracle in the Mountain, Slow Mutants, and uh, Gunslinger in Correct. the Dark Knight. Yes. So five installments in, in 1982. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes. So, he's saying... <laughs> I, I believe... I believe. I believe. I believe that I probably owe readers who have come this far with me some sort of synopsis. The argument, those great old romantic poets would have called it, of what is to come, since I'll almost surely die before completing the entire novel, or epic, or whatever you'd call it, or whatever you'd call it. The sad fact is that I can't really do that. People who know me understand that I am not an intellectual ball of fire. <laughs> and people who have read my work with some critical approval, there are few, <laughs> I bribe them. <laughs> probably agree that the best of my stuff has come more from the heart than from the head or from the gut, which is a place from which the strongest emotional writing originates. All of which is just a way of saying that I'm, I'm never completely sure where I'm going. And in this story that is even more true than usual, I know from Roland's vision near the end that his world is indeed moving on because Roland's universe exists within a single molecule of weed dying in some cosmic vacant lot. I think I probably got this idea from Clifford D. Simak's Ring Around the Sun. Please don't sue me, Cliff. <laughs> and I know that the drawing involves calling three people from our own world, as Jake himself was called by the Man in Black, who will join Roland in his quest for the Dark Tower. I know that because segments of the second cycle of stories, called The Drawing of the Three, have already been written. I'm going to stop there, Kevin. Before before sure. we move on, um, I forgot to look this Clifford up. Clifford D. Simax, Ring Around the Sun. You did. Yes. Uh, what do you know about that? I think I tried reading it after I read this, and I couldn't get into it. Let me. But I feel like I would have uh, better luck today. Uh, <laughs> but it's just great. Please don't sue me, Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> Like, writers then were, like, I think much more worried about plagiarism than writers now. Especially with, what's that, uh, chat GPT yeah, exactly, or whatever? exactly, where it's just AI you just writing like a story for you. AI write your freaking paper. Oh my gosh, that's that's crazy. There, there are kids using this for, like, papers, and you can, like, check on it and stuff. And it's like, oh, wow. That's something I had to look for. Uh, let, let's add that to the list of... Teacher responsibilities. Of plagiarism. Now you have exactly. to check for plagiarism from artificial exactly. intelligence. Robots are writing the paper for you. <laughs> oh, crazy. crazy. But oh. yes. I was like, just look it up and, and give me your thoughts. But yes, but anyway. Clifford D. Simak was alive when Stephen King wrote this in 1982. So he, <laughs> in okay. theory, could have written this section. Uh, I mean, could have read this section. <laughs> and he could have sued him, but oh, hopefully not, he yeah. didn't. 
Well, is it like a direct like? I feel like that. This is another. I should I should have looked up a summary of Ring Around the Sun. Uh, do you want to? Do you want me to read it? Uh, so the novel tells the story of a group of quote mutants with enhanced mental abilities and the ability to move between apparently all empty parallel worlds, organizing the colonization of those worlds by the population at large. Since this requires uprooting the colonists and thoroughly disrupting the social structure of earth, earth's current power structure resists fiercely, even as it is undermined by the introduction of disruptive devices and everlasting goods, such as the so-called forever car at ridiculous low prices. Uh, interesting. Hmm. Interesting. That, that I, I'm glad you yeah, yeah. stop there. <laughs> don't go too far. I don't want to know too True. much. But it, I can see where exactly. we're going, and and we've already foreshadowed a lot. Indeed, of this. like I feel like this you is know? probably one of the f- like uh, hold hold travelers or something. Uh, Wasn't there what are the something names? in like the very the, beginning? The the many folk are they're able to to travel between worlds less, or something yeah, yeah. like because because sworn i heard that and uh yeah so drawing uh, the man in black probably who now we know is walter um he pulled jake and roland from their worlds into this Blade of grass. well he pulled jake from new york city in the 70s uh, and then he, but I think Roland kind of walked there. I guess. Well, I'm, I'm guessing uh, that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. True. Yeah. As far yeah, as we Roland, know, true. Right he, now, uh, Roland was just walking in the desert. Yeah, for he some gave reason. Roland the vision of the blade of grass. <laughs> but Jake did see the man in black when yes. he was in the Well, mm, well, we'll see. Yes. Yes. Uh, no, no, he did. He, he said a man in a cassock uh, pulled me. That's in true, yeah. I, I, after he got run over by a car. Yeah, I was right? like, uh, hang on, uh, let me get the last This is a good yeah. review. This is a good review. Exactly. <laughs> but what of the gunslingers' murky past? God, I know so little. The revolution that topples the gunslingers' world of light? I don't know. Roland's final confrontation with Martin? Who seduces his mother and kills his father? Don't know. The deaths of... <laughs> The deaths of Roland's compatriots, Cuthbert and Jamie, or his adventures during the years between his coming of age and his first appearance to us in the desert. I don't know that either. And there's this girl, Susan. <laughs> Who is she? I don't know. Well, yeah. Don't know. Except somewhere inside, I do. Somewhere inside, I know all of those things. Do you want no, to read, okay. Kevin? But yeah, I, I just I, I love how honest he is here where he's like, uh, you know, if you want to if you want to ask, yeah, if you want to ask me how it ends, I honest to God can't tell you because that's not the way my writing process works. I I don't I don't already know. Uh, yeah. Pantser. Isn't that what we called them in the beginning? Pants, the yeah, Pantser. Yeah. Pantser. <laughs> so he's like, I don't know what's happening next. I'm, I'm just typing on my crappy typewriter. Yeah. That sucks, and this is all in my head. It will come out. Just exactly. you wait. <laughs> I know something you don't. But he know. doesn't even know what he doesn't know. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't yeah. know either. Oh, it's wonderful. I love I know, this I guy. Oh, uh, Stephen King. Let's hang exactly. out. Exactly. Like I feel like <laughs> this whole section has like 
informed my process of writing so much. Like, just the idea of, like, well, you don't have to know how the story ends before you start writing it. You just need a character and a premise and just go. And I feel like it's like improv, where you just get a premise and a character and then you just run off from there and then see where it, see where it takes you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, this makes me want to, like, just sit down and, and type a story about yeah. someone. Exactly. Something. <laughs> yeah. For some reason. <laughs> uh. Except somewhere inside, I do. Somewhere inside, I know all those things. And there's no need in arguments or a synopsis or an outline. <laughs> Outlines are the resource of bad fiction writers who wish to God they were writing master theses. When it's time, those things, and their relevance to the Gunslinger's quest, will roll out as naturally as tears or laughter. And if they never get around to rolling out, well, as Confucius once said, 500 million red Chinese don't give a shit. I do know this. At some point, at some magic time, there will be a purple evening, an evening made for romance, when Roland will come to his dark tower and approach it, winding his horn. And if I should ever get there... You'll be the first to know. Stephen King. Love it. Oh. <laughs> it's just that idea of a purple evening where he will come to the tower winding his horn. and oh. <laughs> It is winding, right? As, as I, was, I, was like, is it I think that's a, I think that's the phrase, winding his winding. horn. Yeah. Wind, winding his horn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Oh. oh, man. The guy just like... Like I, I bet, like it, just in conversation, he he says like great words, and you're like, mm. nice. I know, I love it. <laughs> like great usage of that freaking word that nobody uses, like in a sentence, in well used prose. Like, purple evening, so evenly. Well, he's a, a romantic poet. Yeah. Right? I mean, Robert Browning mm. definitely was, but what does uh, that well, mean? Ro- the Rome right. Robert Browning uh, was. It was that time, so like 1850s is the romance. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, hang on. The Romantic period began roughly 1798 and lasted until 1837. The political and economic atmosphere of the time heavily influenced this period, with many writers finding rev- inspiration from the French Revolution. A lot of social change. Mm. Uh, so 1850s would have been like right on the outset uh, romanticism as an artistic and intellectual movement that originated in Europe towards the end of the 18th century in most parts of Europe it was at its peak approximately 1800 to 1850 characterized by an emphasis on emotion and individualism clandestine literature and paganism so I feel like uh, let's see uh yeah. So I feel like personally I would say the ideas of romanticism like often has a lot of uh kind of like knights and kings and things like that at least from what I've seen. Yeah. Um and definitely a, a lot about uh the rugged well, individualism and stuff like that. Yeah, I wouldn't say knights and kings because that that would be before I think romanticism was more um like you said it's after the French Revolution about kind of in- individualism and uh um changing social norms and stuff but I don't know. Hmm. I could be wrong about that cuz I was not I was a biology major. <laughs> I did like English. 
Bruce Ackerman would have a lot to say about this right now. Very true. He <laughs> knows a lot more about uh, literary history than we do. Uh, let's see. Romanticism revived medievalism and juxtaposed a pastoral concept of a more authentic European past with a highly critical view of recent social changes, including urbanization brought about by the Industrial Revolution. So at least that's according mm-hmm. to Wikipedia here. Uh yeah. So, well, so medievalism was what you were talking about, knights and knights kings, kings and castles yeah. and stuff. Romantic, yeah. uh, frequently glorifying the Middle Ages by depicting them in moralistic, idealized forms. Uh, so basically, it's a reaction against the Industrial Revolution, kind of uh, very much to what uh, our point was saying that kind of the over-mechanization uh, of things uh, is a bad thing. And we should go kind of back to simpler times of uh, just individual heroes who can bring about uh, global change as opposed to globalism mm-hmm. affecting the individual yeah it's like oh how do we actually make change uh, we need to uh, support this local freaking politician who can possibly make a vote to do something maybe yeah. like and hope it's that like, this person doesn't get corrupted you know, along the process and blah 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 yes and, 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 and they all do like uh, oh, darn it we thought you were good, but you're like, nope, this is just how the freaking machine works. Exactly. And we're stuck in this a cog in a wheel. We had such high <laughs> hopes for the Biden uh, uh, administration, but uh, it turns out it's not that great. Yeah. Oh, no, no. It's just more bullshit. Yeah. It's bullshit from both sides. Yeah. It's, I'm I mean, sorry. it's almost it's, as though... Why are you talking about this? Yeah. I, I, had to, I had to go there. I had to go there. Uh, you know, that's... It was the... But I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Clearly from our stances thus far throughout the podcast, uh, both of us us are uh, Democrats. But, you know, uh, we'll we'll stop the political uh, conversation at that. But uh, but in any case, the you know, the the idea of the individual bringing about huge change through fate or through um, a a long quest that they go on is what hopes and dreams, hopes and dreams. Yeah. (laughs) thoughts and prayers yeah that's i i feel like the that's what causes this revival of this kind of medievalism and things like that and kind of uh, probably was part of what inspired stephen king to write this story that uh you know after kind of the disillusionment of the the vietnam war and things like that that uh, it kind Mm -hmm. of uh brought him back to the idea of like okay well if this is what politics is and this is what these things are just if i bring it down to like the um allegory of just it's very small yeah, level small level of just <laughs> one hero trying to bring about change by going all he has to do is go to this dark tower and everything will be okay and he's being stopped by this man in black who's this uh archetypal just uh nemesis that he has and the sacrifices that he has to make mm-hmm. along the way including the the love of this boy Jake and uh, like as he's going along I feel like it's going from ultimate allegory and it's becoming more and more complex as the story goes so uh, mm, I know absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think uh, I can't wait to see what's next indeed and <laughs> I feel like that is as good a place as any to say let's go on to d- uh, drawing of the three Drawing of the Three, coming up next. That'll be our next episode. Is, uh, and, and I've been, Kevin, I've been looking at this book. And just and like, I want to open it, but we still have to record the freaking afterward, and then I can read. Uh, so, 
Are there any changes? I think we talked about this, right? There's no changes to the drawing of the three or anything. I, so like, I have, it is what it is. I haven't bought uh, an edition of drawing of the three yet uh, from, you know, a modern version of the story. So I st- the copy that I have is from, uh, what is it, 88, uh, 87, 87, well, I think. Mine is the same Michael Whelan, but it's just... Way thicker. Oh, nice. True, it is definitely a longer book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so uh, I think it has illustrations in it too. So mm. Hopefully, uh, I haven't. Oh, I haven't cracked it yet. <laughs> Just like. Uh. <laughs> True. You're, there are some spoilers right away uh, if you look at the pictures. But yeah. Um, so let's say let's say right now read chapter one, and then we'll cut off the discussion if we start to run long next week. Just read chapter one of uh, the Drawing of the Three. Drawing of the Three, cool. yeah. That's my homework. Indeed. Awesome. And then we'll record next week. Indeed. Awesome. Um, well, until then, uh, thank you for joining us. You can check us out on various uh, podcast places. We're called Chapter Brothers. Chapter Brothers Podcast. Uh, Chapterbrothers.com. You know, Facebook, Spotify, yeah. Yeah. All those. Oh, I need to update that website. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, we are chaotic good. We will never be lawful. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not good at the bureaucracy mm. at all. But anyway, um, until then, everyone, um, Kevin, long days and pleasant nights. And may you have twice the number. I love you, brother. <laughs> love you, too.